Welcome to The Near Memo, a weekly conversation about search, social, and commerce. What happened, why it matters, and the implications for local. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Greg Sterling. I'm with David Mim and Mike Blumenthal, as always, every week as we discuss the most interesting developments of the week or whatever's at top of mind, (laughs) depending on how we feel. (laughs) And uh, today is a little bit more like that. Um, And uh, so. uh, I got. I just got back. I went to the. I'm not. I'm not initiating my portion here. I'm just teasing it. So uh, I, I was at a conference this week, and it was pretty weird. And I'll be talking about that a little bit later. Um, but first, we're going to have the the serious item today, which is uh, David's discussion of the uh, impact of some of the privacy changes that Apple's making on on email and email analytics and the perceptions of email's viability as a marketing tool going forward. So. Sure. So there were uh, a lot of stories this week uh, around the, what was it, WWDC event uh, earlier that Apple talked about some of these upcoming changes. And uh, a couple of them in in particular were, I saw, I wish I could remember the source on this, but uh, a full frontal assault on marketers. And uh, it's one of these changes is going to make for the death of email marketing. Uh, And I would, I'm reminded of the Mark Twain quipped that, uh, you know, his death was greatly exaggerated when right. it was reported in the, in the paper on one of his trips to Europe. So, um, well, so before you get into the debunking that, what, what, let's explain what the, what the impact is. Sure. So the, uh, as I understood it anyway, the announcement was that effectively Apple was going to sort of start pre-screening, uh, emails, uh, which would require them to effectively open them, uh, to trigger the, to fire the tracking pixel that a lot of, um, emails from all kinds of email service providers, MailChimp, HubSpot, whatever, they all typically include a tracking pixel to understand if a, if a subscriber has opened the email uh, and that Apple's new implementation will es- essentially fake and open uh, so that those those pixels are going to fire no, just on a send, essentially, to uh, anyone who's opening on an Apple uh, in an Apple mail client. So, um, so that was the, that was really interesting. Uh, I my take is that you know open rates are sort of um, sort of like a vanity metric, right? They're they're akin to the number of uh, the number of likes that your Facebook page has, or something like that. Where where they're not really where the rubber meets the road when it comes to emails. I think that they're they're directionally important, right? You'd want to know if your open rates started at fifty percent and this week they're at 15%, you're probably either sending too much too frequently or the content you're sending is really crappy. Um, but they never should have been your sort of be all end all metric. I think a much more important metric uh, is, are you sending interesting content? Are your subscribers actually clicking on what you're sending? Uh, and as far as I can tell, the announcement doesn't impact the ability for email service providers to track clicks, uh, which are typically done on a campaign ID and a subscriber ID uh, basis. So not to say that Apple couldn't come after those at some point, but that, that didn't seem to be part of this announcement. Um, the, and- the one thing they, they did announce, though, which is the uh, Apple Cloud Plus Privacy Initiative, which essentially runs all web traffic through anonymous servers, essentially anonymous servers, so that location of clicks can no longer be tracked. So there is some loss of analytics data yep. at the same time, even if there is a tracking number which I'm all in favor of. And nobody wrote about the end of analytics, though, even though they're going to be totally hosed with these well, changes. Well, 
I mean, if you look at the whole, if you look at the market holistically, I mean, now with Google sort of aping Apple's kind of uh, ad ID moves to some degree, I mean, you're, there's there's a there's a holistic um, encroachment on the the uh, the credit, you know, not credibility, but the uh, the accuracy of analytics, the availability and accuracy of analytics across the board. Right, and and I guess my my analogy, which I mentioned on Twitter, was was you know, it's not like SEO is isn't valuable because it's way harder to track than paid search, right? It's not like email is is all of a sudden less valuable. It's just harder to track. So we're just going to do a ha- we're just going to have to do a better job of uh, figuring out what content is resonating and making sure we're sending good content and all those things. And I also think that there's still plenty of opportunity for email as a as a conversion mechanism, even if Apple starts uh, discontinuing uh, click throughs for tracking. Right. If you have a code that you need to redeem at checkout or, or things like that you're still going to find that email is one of the most effective channels for you. So I just thought it was a, you know, typical sort of tech press week in terms of um, fawning over every, over every major announcement, whether it's Apple or Google or Amazon or whoever, um, and, and overhyping whatever the yeah. impact of that announcement was, uh, or at the very least misframing what the announcement actually means. So, well, I mean, it, I mean, well, I was just going to say, Apple traffic has mobile traffic has largely been dark in analytics for a while, right? We don't know which app they're using. We don't we don't know a lot about them, and as a result, people under us, I think, underestimate obviously one of the biggest spending populations in the world, which is iPhone users, and because so, we can't see them that clearly. To some extent, it gives Google a leg up because we can see the traffic that's coming from Maps or from local or from the website and. Etc. And we can't quite see it as clearly from Apple, and and so a lot of people don't focus as much on it. But I think all of this is going to get further muddied together, and we're going to have to come up with new techniques across the board, not just with email. Um, just a quick point on the the viability of email. I mean, consistently in surveys, consumers said email was one of the primary channels that they respond to most. I mean, that's it. It continues to be. Uh, something that people are receptive to and that they're engaged with, you know, provided that the content is good, as you say. So, you know, simply because it can't be tracked as 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 accurately doesn't mean that it shouldn't continue to be used. You know, you've got to focus on the customer and not necessarily on the dashboard, you know. Well said. Okay. And now to Mr. Dashboard himself, Mike Blumenthal. <laughs> so I spent my week exploring uh, abuses in the Google, my business arena of the names, business names. There's a longstanding Google rule that says the business name is supposed to reflect your business in the real world. And somebody sent across my desk a business that had a, I don't know, 174 character name. Uh, 93% of it was all made up keywords or all keywords added to the basic business name to help them do better in search. So I introduced it as a competition on my personal blog to see who could find the longest business name because two things. One, clearly this was just one example. And the other was uh, two years ago, I did something similar and I determined that the limit to business names was a hundred characters and clearly was past that. I wasn't prepared to nuke my own personal listing in the experiment. So I challenged others to nuke their listing instead. And what we determined, one, we found names up to about 289 characters, I think, was the winner. Although maybe that was in India, so somebody said India doesn't count because everything's spam there. But we found a number of names. Sam Plepper from 
uh, Stan of Plever did some scraping and found four or 500 that were longer than that. And we, what we found was it's a fairly small percentage go to that extreme. Uh, the one I really liked, though, was the um, fortune teller in China that had uh, 200, I don't know, 74 character name. And they also, though, had 469 five-star reviews. And I was thinking that probably was foretold. You know, they probably knew that they were going to be that successful, right? Um, so it's just, it, it's curious to me. One, why would Google increase the limit beyond any reasonable number? Two, to, en- to encourage keyword stuffing. To and well, right. I mean, spammers are getting more active. They need more space. But I mean, why don't they just go get rid of all the categories and just let people pile it into their name? I mean, I don't get it. And and it's a field that's so broadly abused. So I went and I looked at the uh, pool cleaner that I think got this all started. And, you know, his competition's all doing it. Of course, they weren't 174 characters. They were 125, 135. But in Los Angeles, everybody's doing it. So the enforcement has dropped way down. The rules are still there. These are not helpful to consumers. They're, they're deleterious to surrounding businesses. And basically, there's a, you know, a rush to the bottom of the branding barrel by naming your business David Mims, best internet search consultant ever. Please call now kind of business, right? So I don't know. Which is not my actual GMB name. I think I did reduce <laughs> it back to David Mim uh, after whenever that experiment was that we were running. Um, you know, it's so interesting, Mike. I'm just, uh, there's a couple couple of uh, anecdotes that it reminds me of. The first is, at least when Joel Headley was working at Google, he always advised that your business name in GMB should be should be the same thing as what you say when you answer on the phone. So I have a heart. I'm, I'm just wondering how these swimming pool companies answer their phones if they actually <laughs> align with uh, the the 274 characters. Enforcement um, has become very weak in this arena. Just so right. Well, that's the second. My, the second thing is you know you go back to all of these bogus PR statements that Google puts out when stuff like this happens about, oh, well, we have to, you know, let a certain percentage of spam in so we can understand what they're doing. And it's like, guess what? They're just stuffing keywords willy nilly uh, based on a non-existent character limit and clearly no human review. So the the solution here seems fairly obvious to me. Maybe rank could be inversely related to the length of the name. Right, so Maybe the longer, that, the, right. the more characters you put in, the lower your rank. Yeah. It's really simple. I'm, to I'm switching my name to DM. <laughs> <laughs> Good plan. I can see you still have always, some SEO blood flowing always through one your veins. Se- always <laughs> one step ahead. Always one step ahead. <laughs> there, there are SEOs who are st- well back before when there were conferences still. Um, who who would recommend keyword stuffing? You know, Google says no, no, but it works, and so you know. The, the, that was sort of a recommendation that was, you know, wink, wink, passed along in some some of the. It's still in that. local. It still is because business names work. If you add a category or two or three to your business name, the risk is very low. The reward is quite high, and there is no there's actively well, non enforcement. And the question becomes, why shouldn't a business do it? Well, and this is what we were talking about with fake reviews that there are no incentives for anybody to to not. You know, there's no incentive for Google to truly enforce uh, again. You know, to to remove all the fake reviews because nobody's going to punish them, and you got Section 230, and there's no there's no uh, disincentive for businesses to do this. Right. So, in conclusion, Greg, yeah, near media is what eleven characters, I give or take 
So, anyways, you you yeah, as not, the well, if you, you include the, the dot co, if you are you the counting dot co. the dot co? Are you counting well, the dot and the co? No, no, just just our name, your media. So, you as well, editor in chief have to come up with uh, 179 additional characters for our listing. Well, so so but make them litter. At least get the commas in the right spot. You know. The, yeah. Well, I was going to ask you about whether there was any separators between these. Most people these use the pipe. Uh, some people use commas. Some people don't put anything in. It's really, they are quite hilarious when you see them. But it, it speaks to the dialectic of sort of gaming plus Google's dominance, how it distorts marketplaces, right? When, when you're as big as they are and have as much influence as they do, they end up distorting marketplaces. And this is a good, uh, you know, it's not a financial, well, it is a financial distortion. Just shows you how much influence they have that people are doing it. Yeah, for sure. Well, so I was at a conference this week where I gave a presentation on fake fake reviews, which I won't go into right now, and some of the research that we did at Uberall on this, which we haven't published yet. And interestingly, next week there's a, another organization uh, that's going to put out a number t- tied to how much review fraud costs in terms of purchases, gross merchandise value that's motivated by review fraud. Um, which I don't want to reveal because it's it's under embargo, but it's kind of interesting. It's only for e-commerce, not services. So that's, it's a big number, um, probably underestimating it. But um, so so I wanted to talk this week about this conference because I went back to this this first live event. Uh, it was the Advanced Search Summit in Napa, California, which is only about an hour north of where I live. So I drove, and I, I had been scheduled to speak at it in 2019, and they just rolled everybody over. To 2021, so I went, and it was it was it was really interesting to be at a live event now after all of this because I've been telling people I can't make small talk anymore, and I was really sort of nervous to see people and how you know I've gained weight. How is that going to be? <laughs> anyway, so it was it was at once really familiar and very strange at the same time. So so it was great to see some of the people. People seemed genuinely happy to be together. Um, there was a lot of, um, joyful kind of socializing, uh, the mask enforcement was really inconsistent, which was very strange. I mean, people were supposed to wear masks inside and half the people weren't, um, at the social events, which were sort of the main emphasis of this, of this get together, um, people were drinking and close talking and standing toe to toe. And there was very little, um, distancing or recognition of of that even and people sort of essentially treating the whole thing as though it's all in the past um but there were some initial interesting conversations with people about how weird it was to be back together in this kind of a situation and um and then sort of by day two and now it's on day three i i came back yesterday uh people are just back in the mode you know it seemed like everybody sort of snapped back into business development schmoozing you know, deal making mode, um, and and what what so it, it, it remained very strange to me. But what's clear is that people are going to come back to conferences in a big way because you simply cannot get the value that you get from interacting in person in a virtual event. So, you know, but you said there, content became secondary. I mean, do you think that? Well, a- so at this at this particular event, people were not that interested in hearing the content. I mean, that's often true for people who come to conferences to network. They don't sit in on the sessions, but it really seemed that way here. It really seemed that people were, were, it was almost like people were attending the conference either because they'd made the previous commitment 
And this was simply the fulfillment of that, or it was a novelty experience. Wow, mm-hmm. here's a live event that we can go to, and it's got some of these cool uh, social socializing, you know, cool networking events around it. But were there any were there any vaccine passport requirements at all, or so so on our yes, system? No, in theory, you were supposed to be either bring your vaccine card or a vaccination card or have a negative evidence of a negative COVID test. But when I got there, nobody enforced anything. I had my card. I was ready to show it to people. Nobody enforced anything. Um, So I guess the assumption is that everybody complied with that. But um, it's an interesting interesting point. um, Just in my session, which was on review fraud, uh, there was a woman who asked a question at the end who said that her company had taken over a business. She didn't say who they were or who the business was that they'd taken over. But almost all of their reviews, which were mostly five-star reviews, were fake and had been paid for. And she didn't know what to do now because should she take mm. down her own reviews? Mm. Uh, or, you know, what, what, what I said to her was, you know, initiate your own program and then talk to somebody at Google, talk to a Google rep about how to handle it because she wanted mm. to do the right thing. But if she removed all her reviews right away, there would have been a kind of an immediate hit probably to their traffic. But it was a, it was a, it was it was validation of of one of the points that I was making, which is the most common type of uh, of, of reviews are business owner fraud. You know, it's like either getting friends and family or employees to write the reviews or paying for somebody to do that. So that was mm-hmm. kind of interesting that she that she came in and saw that all their reviews were were bogus and had been bought. You know, mm-hmm. but but um, it was it was great to see people at this event, and um, I am not emotionally or physically prepared to go right back into the conference circuit. It was weird to get into mm-hmm. the hotel room. It was just all the, all the familiar routines that everybody does were just, I, I'm not quite ready for that. You know, mm-hmm. I have so loved not traveling. I was, I mean, in retrospect, I was traveling too much. I was traveling almost once a month and it yep. was too, it was too much. And now the question becomes what's right travel. And I decided I'm not even going to address the question during the summer and I'll deal with it in the fall. Well, this this is, I think, where people are going to be. I, I think people will be discriminating about the events that they go to. They'll want to go to high quality events where they're going to get a lot of, you know, a lot of meetings, or there's somebody they really want to see, or there's, you know, they really want to present. People w- w- used to go to a lot of events, and I think there will be a sort of a threshold, uh, and then a lot of the sort of lesser events may may not continue. Um, mm. So either either really big events where you're going to get a lot of efficiency. Or really, sort of boutique events where there's mm-hmm. a high quality interaction, and it was nice that this event was relatively small. Um, you know, it, it, it made for better kind of interaction with people. So, yeah, I was. I'm thinking about your your comment about networking. You know, people not really there for the content. And Mike, I remember our the the Cinda conference you and I went to in Valencia in. Mm-hmm. 2017 or something like that. Not that it was all networking, but I think that they did such a good job of structured networking events um, at that at that show, Kimberly and her team. And I think that that, to your point, Greg, is probably what people are craving most right now. Yeah, um, absolutely. More more than any tactical tips to grow their business or whatever. So um, I think that that's. Yeah, I'm just wondering if that means you should rethink how you structure a conference. Yes. You know, co- the relative weight of content versus yeah. networking and what that well, means. So so I do think I, I think that's an excellent point. And I do think it means fundamentally rethinking what a conference is and really and really 
Um, you know, there's a lot of tension between content and networking very often at conferences because people pull out of the sessions to go network because there's not enough networking time. And the, and the Europeans do do, Kimberly does do a great job with the structured networking. And, and at this conference, they did a, a pretty good job um, with that. But I think, I think there's, there's kind of hunger for real information at conferences, not just the blah, blah, blah that you get in a lot of presentations. So if you can create group discussions or, you know, sort of AMAs or, or some, some sort of short presentation with a lot of engagement, that kind of format is going to be better than the standard. Here's a million stats and our sales pitch, um, you know, that kind of perfunctory stuff that you get at a lot of shows. Yeah, I mean, where I'm thinking about is local you, right, which has always been leading edge content, tactical content that, you know, that has been developed over the past period of time. But- and, that's a little yeah, bit different. That's a little bit of an, of an exception. Yeah. But I'm wondering, even there, whether the which it's been intensely content driven, right? Eight hours straight of content, but with two big networking events, two night big before networking and night events. Of, so yeah. right. But the question is whether that should even be ameliorated further, right? I mean, particularly the first one back. Should it be? Should there be a much more conscious effort at networking during the day or? you know, whatever. I, I don't know. Well, there's also going to be, uh, there's also going to be like a, a transition period where the novelty of being in, in person will be, people will be especially hungry to, to be in person with one another. And then over time, I think that will fade and we'll be back to some sort of regular conference mode or cadence, you know? Right. Yeah. I don't know. So, I went to the barber the other day and I was aghast to find out that my barber, after telling me not to to take my mask off that he wasn't vaccinated and he wasn't going to get vaccinated. It's like, Oh my God, what did I do? I sat down the seat, but it brings out this whole stress though, that every aspect of society is going through, whether it's merchants and consumers or conferences and consumers. So it's, it's going to be us. I, you know, I think, I think a growth business right now would be psychology counseling. Well, I, I, I think it's, what's really weird is people not knowing, you know, not knowing whether to wear the mask or not wear the mask. And a lot of the, a lot of the sort of um, the, you know, whatever the, the your peer group is doing in the situation determines your behavior. I mean, it's very hard to be the only person wearing a mask if everybody else isn't wearing a mask. Right. Yeah. I agree. So, all right. On, on that note, we will conclude. This is number 15. Is that right? No, it's no, 16, no. 20 or something. 19, oh my God. 19, I think. Where have I been? All right. Number time, fly, been, time flies, Greg. Time flies. You've been yeah. caught in a COVID time vortex. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, anyway, so thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah. Have a good weekend or rest of your week, wherever, wherever you are. Thanks for joining David, Mike, and Greg. To stay on top of the latest developments in local, subscribe to our newsletter at nearmedia.co. We'll see you next week.